0: Welcome to Iceland Review. My name is Ragnar Thomas. Today we'll be listening to staff writer Eric Palmranke read his interview and article about the designer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist Harald Thorlevson.
1: Man of the Year. When Ramp-Up Iceland constructed its 300th ramp this November, a curious scene ensued. As Haraldur Thorleifsson, the project's founder, took center stage in the Mjöt bus station to make a celebratory speech, President Gwyzni Jóhannesson interrupted him from the crowd, in what media would later playfully describe as heckling. The president then proceeded to spray paint over Halley's initial goal of 1,000 with a new one of 1,500. Later, Halley would tweet, Since he's the president, I guess we have to do it. The playful exchange captured what many find so endearing about Holly as he's often known, a benevolent tech titan who's still able to take a joke. Much of the exchange also took place on Twitter, where Holly is both an avid user and a current employee. As a designer, Holly thinks a lot about the decisions that shape the world we inhabit. We take so many aspects of life for granted, be it a building, a coffee cup, or a public transportation system. We see it as a given, as part of our environment, forgetting the choices and circumstances that made them. Halley, however, was not the kind of child to settle for, that's just how it is, as an answer. His tech career has allowed him to work wherever he wants, and he has traveled extensively through the world, living and working in places like Tokyo, Buenos Aires, Vancouver, Barcelona, and Rio de Janeiro. Both his travels and design background have made him think very deeply about why cities are laid out in certain ways, and why certain buildings lack accessibility, while others don't. You can go from city to city, he says, and often, just within the same country, there's a very stark difference. So it's very clear that these are all man-made decisions. Holly's journey to becoming one of Iceland's so-called tax kings was not an obvious one. Born with muscular dystrophy, which left him fully dependent on his wheelchair by his mid twenties, his family was also working class. Looking back, Halley is fully aware that things might have been different. Education's definitely the big one, Halley says, reflecting on the advantages of growing up in Iceland. In places like the United States, there's a big difference in education depending on the money you have, and social differentiation begins very early in education, starting in kindergarten. And of course, it's not just the quality of education, but the network you develop and your social capital as well. Having studied philosophy and business at university, Halley went out to drop out of a master's degree in economics. Like so many foundational figures of the tech industry, Halley found it hard to adapt to the daily routines of formal education and work life. But unlike many of his tech peers, Halley hasn't mythologized his origin story. It wasn't really a principled stance at the time, Holly admits. Thinking back to some of his first jobs, he's quite candid about the reason for his different path. I just felt I couldn't show up in a tie every day. As Holly was finding his way in the world, he also received some aid in the form of disability payments. I couldn't have lived off of it for a long time, Holly says. But it did get me through some hard times. Some of these hard times include being fired from one of his first serious jobs in New York and a difficult period with alcohol and drug use. He also recalls ruefully how he happened to start his first day of work at CCP, a large Icelandic game development studio, on the same day as the banking collapse in Iceland. But, in 2011, Holly sobered up and got married. And then, in 2014, he founded Ueno. Ueno grew out of Holly's work as a freelancer. Holly scored a lucky break in taking on a project for Google. And, as his projects grew bigger and bigger, he realized that he needed to organize a team. Over the years, Ueno grew into a full-service design agency, developing apps, making websites, creating brands, and leading the way in online marketing for some of the biggest names in tech, including Uber, Facebook, and Twitter. Some of their best-known projects include the Santa Tracker for Google, the Reuters News App, and Dropbox's online guide. When Holly sold Uino to Twitter in 2021, the proceeds from the sale were enough to send him to number two on the list of Eisen's top taxpayers, the exclusive list of so-called tax kings. Normally, selling off a highly profitable tech company involves stock options and other financial instruments designed at keeping the profit in lower tax brackets than wages. Instead of experimenting with creative bookkeeping, Holly went in the opposite direction receiving the majority of his profit as wages. The highest wage bracket in Iceland is taxed at a marginal rate of 46%, with lower brackets at 38 and 31%. Had Halley chosen stocks or other financial instruments instead, he would have been taxed at the much lower rate of 22%. Not all details from the sale are public, but according to his tax return, Halley reported a monthly salary of 102 million kroner throughout 2021 some 46% of which would have been paid in tax. In talking with Hulli, there is no sense of martyrdom or regret. Nor does he seem to have been simply following the rules, impartially acting like everyone ought to. He seems genuinely happy to have the ability to give back. The largest part of his working life has been with American tech companies. Reflecting on the differences between his home and the United States reveals a deep appreciation for Iceland's social systems. In terms of living, Iceland is simply a better place. In terms of work, if you just isolate that part, the U.S. probably has a leg up, but not for the right reasons. It's a fear-based society. People are afraid to make mistakes. And when they do, there are no safety nuts. In a lot of ways, I relate to that American work ethic, but I don't think we should build a society around it. Everyone is very motivated, but I don't think they're happier. In Iceland, because of the social system... There's more room for life, he says. Despite his passion for the principles of social democracy, Holly certainly does not believe that he has all the answers for the world's social woes. Exhibiting his trademark humility, Holly says simply, I'm not smart enough to have the solutions, but I think, in general, it would be good to level things. We should start with the assumption that it would be good to be more equal, The people who have more should pay more. This, it seems, is Holly's goal to make Iceland a better place for living. Once Holly was back in Iceland with his family after years of travel, the lack of access seemed both obvious and insupportable. But now he could do something about it. Ramp-up Reykjavik started humbly, with the goal to build 100 ramps, mostly in downtown Reykjavik. It seemed like every year there was some news story about how a person in a wheelchair couldn't go somewhere in Ljögevegir, he recalls. The reporter was always shocked, but nothing ever changed, and I remember stories like these going back for decades. Now, ramp-up has expanded its scope from Reykjavik to all of Iceland, with a goal of 1,600 total ramps across the country by 2026. The difference is especially noticeable on Ljögevegir, Reykjavik's main shopping street. Just a year ago, the entrances to many stores, restaurants, hair salons, clinics, and more were blocked by staircases. Now, gently sloping stone ramps, unassuming in their design, can now be found throughout the land, allowing people in wheelchairs to access basic services previously out of reach. Every ramp is a little different, needing to be fitted to the building and surrounding in question. Ramp-up's success, according to Hully, is largely thanks to the very focused nature of its goal. In the beginning, Hully remembers, we weren't really sure how it all worked, but now we can do it at scale. It's complicated and expensive to do as a one-off, but we've learned from doing this over and over again. We have a very deep knowledge of the subject now, but we really have no idea how to do anything else, he jokes. The goal of Ramp Up, in short, is to remove any excuse for lack of basic accessibility, making it as easy as possible for the store owner. With a total budget of $400 ISK, half of which is supplied by government funding, Ramp-Up handles everything from applying to permits, submitting plans to the city, sending out work crews, working with local municipalities, and everything else. And the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive, with many confessing that they'd wanted to build ramps to their stores for years, but had no idea how to go about it. However, Holly tells me, as Ramp-Up has made progress, they've quickly realized that ramps are far from the whole story. In the beginning, We talked with a lot of people in the disability community. They rightfully pointed out that it's not just ramps. How wide are the hallways in a building? Are the restrooms accessible? Are there accommodations for blind and hearing impaired people? There are so many things that need to be fixed, Holly says. If anybody wants to tell me how we could be doing better, I'm always listening. One of the defining experiences of Holly's life was the loss of his mother to a car crash at age 11. He was on vacation at Disney World when his father received the news, but it was only once they arrived back in Iceland that he was told. Her early loss was, of course, a tragedy. But before he lost her, she left a lasting mark on her son that would shape how he viewed the world for the rest of his life. In Halle's telling, his mother Annojona was like many mothers, the, quote, best in the world. His mother left a deep love of the arts with Halle. According to him... She was loving and creative, having worked in set design for films. He remembers how they watched so many movies together, and what an amazing storyteller she was. It speaks volumes that many of his passion projects now aim at promoting the arts. Upcoming projects include an artist's residence on the Killerness Peninsula and his own musical pursuits, including a guest appearance at this past year's Airwaves Festival and an upcoming album called The Radio Won't Let Me Sleep to be released this spring. For an awkward and depressed kid, the recent time in the spotlight isn't entirely natural for Hali. I've had to learn to be open to failure in a whole new area, he explains. It's a small country, so everyone's kind of famous, but I've gotten a fair bit of attention. It's been kind of scary. What if it's terrible? It would be a very public failure. This February, Hali will be opening a new cafe between Tirkvogatta and Gersgata. Dedicated to his mother, it bears her name, Anna Yona. With a small theater equipped with 40 seats, it also aims to become a venue of sorts for small performances and screenings. It's an homage to my mother, Holly tells me, but something I thought about a lot before opening this cafe was how I only grew up with her until I was 11. When I think about it now as an adult, it's such a small slice of her life. I thought about going around to everyone who knew her and asking about her, about their memories of her. But ultimately, I decided not to, because there's really no way for me to capture her in her entirety. This is an homage to her, but it's also an homage to my memory of her, of a son, for his mother. An especially strong memory of his mother stays with Hully to this day, some 40 years later. Something I keep coming back to is a conversation with my mom I remember really well, Hully tells me. We were walking around the city, I think. And she was telling me how everything I saw, everything around me, was man-made. I got such a clear impression from my mother that I could have an impact on the world, that it wasn't just for me to look at. It was something that I should, that we all should, feel some responsibility for changing. A recent popular post on social media titled simply, If you're rich, be more like this guy, made the rounds. In the comments, a general consensus emerged that cast Hully as the, quote, good guy millionaire. Inevitably, the idealization of Hully is also tied up in romantic ideas of what people want Iceland to mean to them. It is a perfect society, the first nation in the world with an openly LGBT head of state, and the nation that jailed their criminal bankers, if only for a little while. But to be faithful to Holly's own social democratic convictions, it's only fair to see him as someone human, all too human. There is, for instance, the uncomfortable truth that Ueno made much of its fortune working for American tech companies, many of which are working against precisely the systems which allowed Holly to flourish. Companies like Uber, Tesla, and Amazon have all worked to drive down wages, while fiercely resisting the recent wave of unionization in the United States. Yuino was, of course, not directly involved in these practices. But nevertheless, wherever Silicon Valley seems to promise novelty and freedom, one cannot help but notice that potentially democracy-destabilizing concentrations of wealth seem to follow. Halley was lucky enough to benefit from strong social systems during the hard times of his life, but for many, such opportunities are increasingly being taken away precisely by these tech firms. Though Hulley's fortune is admittedly more humble, it is difficult not to draw comparisons with other members of the tech elite. In some sense, Hulley serves as the inverse image of his current employer, Elon Musk. The child of South African diamond miners, Mr. Musk has likewise benefited from the advantages of his upbringing, though where Musk was born into great generational wealth, Hulley was simply born into a strong social democracy. But what truly differentiates Hali from his fellow members of the tech elite is the application of the designer's eye to his own life as well. Hali doesn't take the world for granted, nor his position in it. Where others justify their anointed positions through appeals to genius, work ethic, and rugged individualism, Hali openly talks about the social support he's received, often letting online followers in behind the scenes of his life. And it's this kind of social engagement online that keeps Holly optimistic about the future of our increasingly digital lives. I still remember the first chat on a computer that I ever had with my cousin, on an old 286, Holly Muses, referencing a popular Intel PC model. I thought this was going to revolutionize the world in almost exclusively good ways back then. I am, in general, more optimistic than pessimistic, but the pessimistic part has definitely grown. Something the tech world, and especially Twitter, has still not totally come to terms with was the election of Donald Trump and the accompanying culture wars centered around freedom of speech, so-called cancel culture, and online hate speech. Today, Holly is working closely with his team at Twitter to address some of these problems, but given the sensitive nature of the work, much of it is still under wraps. As hard a project as it may seem, Holly hopes to make Twitter resemble more the digital hopes of his youth. Twitter has allowed me access to different groups of people, he explains. I think it's broadened my view of the world. I often learn things on Twitter that are uncomfortable, but necessary. I come from a very specific background, a community where everyone is kind of the same. It's important to have access to these different experiences. At the end of 2022, Holly swept various Icelandic media outlets for Man of the Year, being voted by the audiences of Iceland's widest-read publications as the man of the moment. And for good reason. Between Ramp-Up, his contributions to the legal funds for victims of sexual abuse, and generous donations to families in need over the holidays, it is hard to think of one Icelander trying to do more good. And yet, despite all the good he's done, It's worth pausing for a moment to consider a peculiar irony. The man of the year, after all, was chosen for something every one of us do every year. Paying our taxes.
0: Well, thank you for that, Eric. So, I have a confession. Um, I approached Halle for an interview (laughs) in June of last year. And after uh, quite a lengthy exchange via email... Halle ultimately replied, well, thanks for your answers and your patience, Ragnar, but I'm going to have to pass now, (laughs) albeit it would be nice to hear from you guys later. So uh, I'm just wondering why he chose to do the interview with you and not me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's one of these things that just kind of uh, came together a little bit coincidentally, I guess. Um, You know, I was actually just at uh, Iceland Airwaves this last year uh, and, you know, kind of just incidentally caught um just like one of his sets at um just like the airwaves like center uh and yeah you know i mean just like after he got off stage you know i just kind of said you know hey what's up uh would you be interested in just like talking sometime and you know yeah just kind of came together um and then this is actually like before like all of the like man of the year stuff and just kind of uh right before christmas and like the holiday season there's just um like a lot more like media coverage of these things um so yeah it's just one of these things that just kind of happened i guess
0: (laughs) so so you're suggesting that meeting someone in person really strengthens the power of persuasion
1: yes yes Uh, it's
0: it's also very easy to ignore emails (laughs) (laughs) well in his defense he 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 replied um and and was quite quite uh yeah he, he seemed to be he struck me as like um you know, a very thoughtful and um, thorough person. Like, you know, he wanted to get all the details straight before he said yes to anything. Um, so obviously being colleagues, um, we often discuss the uh, articles that we're working on. And I remember that one of the things that you told me sort of in the, in the run-up to the interview was that what she wanted to do with this piece was maybe provide a little more of a thorough, um, nuanced sort of approach to Halle. And um, I think one of the things that you wanted to maybe touch upon was, um, well, here's an individual who's made uh, quite a fortune in bed with tech companies who have a, a problematic history, like most public companies, with, um, with uh treatment of employees, fighting off unionization, et cetera. And you do make that suggestion in the piece itself, but I was wondering if, if you would put these questions to him directly and what he felt about these matters. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, so
1: a lot of the specific details about his work at Twitter are still kind of under wraps uh, right now. Um, And so those can't really be talked about. um, And also, I don't know that much about them. Um, The recent Twitter sale uh, to Elon Musk has kind of uh, put a lot of people under like non-disclosure agreements. Um, But, you know, I mean, I think that in general, like Holly kind of feels what a lot of us feel. Um, And, you know, I think that looking back to like the early days of social media, uh, just the kind of initial digitization of all of our lives. I think that there was a lot of optimism for how these things were going to, you know, as Holly kind of joked, uh, exchange, uh, to change things in exclusively good ways. Uh, obviously it's never as simple as that. Um, you know, I mean, I briefly mentioned, a certain hostility to unionization within American tech companies. Um, You know, also just after the election of Donald Trump, you know, like there were all these things that came out about Cambridge Analytica, maybe um, manipulative ways in which uh, different algorithms work. um, The use of some of these platforms by certain political interests, you know, so obviously this is not the time and place to kind of, uh, solve all of these things. But I think that, you know, like Holly, like the rest of us has kind of seen what I might call the disenchantment of the digital. And, you know, I mean, when we get into it and tech is in our lives in so many more complicated ways than it used to be. And, you know, social media used to be this thing that you just kind of log on to uh, You know, you come home from school or work and you just kind of check your inbox for like 15 minutes or something. And now it's just this thing that's just deeply not just in our personal lives, but in the economy and all these other things. Um, You know, so obviously that's going to muddy everything up. Um, And, you know, so I think that's just to say that, Holly, like the rest of us is, you know, kind of
0: working through
1: this, uh, yeah, disenchantment like the rest of us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Eric, tell us, um, a little bit about this project of how um, ramp up Reykjavik and now ramp up Iceland.
1: Yeah. So it started, uh, a lot smaller and more humble, uh, as ramp up Reykjavik now with ramp up Iceland. Uh, we have this goal of 1600 ramps throughout the country by 2026. Um, and that's a little bit of a kind of arbitrary sounding number, I guess. But so where that comes from is the initial 100 ramps uh, built by Rampup of Uh Then there was this next goal of a thousand. Uh, but then that was also upped by uh, President Guthney, uh to 1,500. So, you know, in total, we have like this goal now of 1,600 ramps throughout the country. Um, you know, something that was just kind of funny in talking with Holly was that uh, he found that in explaining the project to a lot of people that it actually wasn't always totally clear to people what they actually meant by ramps, uh, which is kind of funny because, you know, it has just become such a fixture, uh, especially like on Lego Veger just in the last couple of years. I mean, really just the last year actually. Um, and you know, I mean, just to kind of give people a visual image, I mean, there are a lot of old buildings uh, throughout Reykjavik uh, that were built, you know, just in times before people really thought about accessibility. So, you know, you have a lot of old stone concrete buildings with, you know, kind of maybe narrow staircases um, that just, you know, go right onto the street. And really it's just completely impossible for people in wheelchairs to get into these buildings. Um, And, you know, so, What ramp up is doing is really kind of just paying attention to the individual environment of each situation and building ramps into those buildings. Uh, Like a lot of them, you know, I mean, the best ones are the ones that you don't really notice, actually. Right. Uh, Because a lot of these ramps um, are just very kind of gently sloping stone pavings up to the building. Uh, it's not just, you know, kind of like maybe what you think of as a ramp, I guess. Uh, and they're very unobtrusive. I mean, you can, like, as a pedestrian, walk over them, like, with no problem. Um, and, you know, I mean, it really kind of speaks to, I guess, um, what I think is his designer's eye that, you know, just in the last year or so, like, this has uh, just kind of become the new normal right and like you don't really think about it like it's just all of a sudden like a part of the environment uh just like it used to be with the staircases um and you know i think that was just something that was like really interesting to me uh in talking with holly was just kind of you know his design process and you know i mean also just how quickly uh what we take for granted and what we think is normal kind of changes in a way uh, you know, and to kind of think back to this conversation that he had with his mother that, you know, like the world is man-made and like the world is ours to change. Um, and you can change it in these ways, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, a- a- and all of this, as you mentioned, is sponsored in, in part by his, uh, the selling of his company, which landed him on the list of Iceland's so-called tax kings, Skasta yes. Kungar, yeah. um, Maybe tell us a little bit about that list. Yeah, so uh, every August, um, uh,
1: based on tax returns, uh, there's this list uh, published in Iceland of the highest taxpayers. Um, And there was a really, really great uh, Stundend piece about this, actually. Um, And that was actually really one of the things that kind of got me thinking about this a lot. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is that Often this list of the highest taxpayers uh is, you know, kind of also assumed to be the wealthiest Icelanders, which is not totally the case, right? Um there are a lot of um well, so one like the great critiques I thought, like in the Stunden piece, uh, was just about how the list of ta- of the highest taxpayers kind of puts this emphasis on wage uh, and, of course, wage is taxed at like the higher rate of up to 46 percent at the highest bracket. Um, you know, but then we have like the capital gains at 22 percent. And, you know, this is this is in line with uh, how it is in most Western countries. I mean, uh, Denmark has a much higher uh, capital gains tax. But, you know, I mean, in. The U.S., U.K., Germany capital gains tends to like hover around 20 percent or so. Uh, Some other Nordic countries have, you know, kind of rates approaching 30, mid 30s. Uh, But, you know, I mean, like for the most part, this isn't unique to Iceland. This is just kind of how it is. Um, But, you know, I mean, I think that like a lot of the discourse around the list of the highest taxpayers uh, does maybe kind of distort where we think wealth is. You know, I mean for instance a lot of owners of some like the largest fishing concerns in Iceland actually do take home relatively small monthly and annual wages, uh but in terms of like the actual capital gains uh based on like their overall investments and earnings, you know, these are much much higher. Um and so, you know, I mean I think that like fundamentally uh we're sometimes still stuck in this idea of thinking that Wealth comes from wages that are earned from labor. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, like when we're talking about capital gains, I mean, like often uh, this is generational. It's inherited. It has to do with real estate uh, and all these things. And, you know, so I mean, like Holly is obviously interesting uh, because, you know, his wealth is very recent. And I mean, it does come from work. It comes from labor. It comes from uh, something that he created, Ueno, and its uh, sale to Twitter. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just thought it was a good opportunity to take some time to like reflect on wealth, how we think about wealth, where it comes from. And, you know, I mean, this is definitely something that Holly has also, uh, been very much kind of, uh, outspoken about, uh, in the public discourse, you know, especially on Twitter uh, about, but also just more generally.
0: Excellent. Um, and maybe finally, um, what I'm always interested in when it comes to discussing these pieces and, and what maybe sometimes gets overlooked is, is sort of just the, the craft of it. Um, one's process of writing. Um, how, maybe you could speak to that. I mean, what's your process like? How do you begin a piece? What are you looking for specifically, for example, in interviews? Um, just just generally, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in, for example, how you came to sort of organize this piece and and what you're focusing on. Yeah,
1: I think that for this piece, um, I tried a lot to organize it around this image of this conversation with his mother. Uh, for me, that was really kind of the thing that like brought out a lot of other things that I found really interesting. Um, and you know, this really just kind of like resonated with me both, you know, on a kind of intellectual and also just emotional level, uh, just like this kind of child's conversation with his mother. Um, but I just thought it was like a really great image. And, you know, I mean, also specifically his mother, Ana Yona, her career in film set. I think it's like this really great image of like a film prop and you look at it and it's designed to mimic the environment um and yet you know like when you're on a theater production or yeah like a film set you look at this stuff and you're supposed to kind of take for granted that there is nothing behind it uh but it's precisely the job of a designer to kind of think about this flatness maybe you know like like a like a film prop is flat it pro- uh, it kind of projects this appearance into the world And for the designer, like what's always happening is kind of thinking about that space behind the appearance and like what is kind of going on behind the scenes to give this appearance. And, you know, so I think that, you know, I mean, one, just on a very technical level, I mean, like just doing web design, all these kind of technical things, like, you know, just uh, designing apps, et cetera. You know, obviously there is a lot of technical thinking that goes into producing the images that we interact with. But, you know, I think also just on a much higher kind of social level, like this is also really like a great way to understand Holly and some of the things that really kind of motivate him is thinking about what is going on behind the scenes. Right. Uh, You know, I mean like just also talking with him about his travels, right. Uh, Very often. Yeah. The accessibility situation is really, really different. Uh, In different cities and so you know like very often when you are just kind of in one place for a long time you just kind of start taking everything for granted and you start thinking that you know in some sense the props are real right or that like they've always been there Uh, but like you know moving around traveling a lot being this designer that's always kind of thinking about Um, what's going on behind the scenes, right? Like, like you no longer take that appearance for granted. And like, you realize that you can change it. Like you could, you can swap out the the props, right? Right. (laughs) Like that's actually like a really, that's actually like a really powerful thought is like realizing that, uh, the props were put there by somebody for a reason. Uh, but you have the power to change that. Um, and that was like, for me, like a really kind of, uh, just illuminating moment in talking with him. And I was trying to kind of just, uh, weave that in where I could.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely sort of the most powerful image in the article is this conversation that he has with his mother and and the effect that it has on his life. And I think also I, I like the way that he is trying to translate sort of this messaging from the design world into the social world of, as you say, having moved through different societies, seeing that the way we structure and organize societies is is not um, set in stone, that these are decisions that people have made, and then you can try to make better decisions and and, and try to be sort of outspoken. Um, And that's something, I guess, both of us have come to probably recognize having lived in two very different societies, that, um, yeah there, there's probably a better way of going about things, so yeah that's that's fascinating. um thank you for the reading and uh, and for the the uh, interview, Eric. Yeah, thank you.
1: Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening please consider subscribing to Ice Review
0: at our website.